Welcome to the Texas Home Improvement Super Podcast with Jim Dutton. All the best calls this week throughout the state of Texas. Brought to you by James Hardy Siding, the best siding on the planet. We're going to head out to Wichita Falls. David, welcome to Texas Home Improvement. Oh, thank you. How can I help you? Well, I am looking for the uh, the easiest and and cheapest way to uh, paint unfinished cabinets. Ah, you know, I'm painting today myself. I'm I'm actually at the deer lease. I've been I've been redoing some sheetrock, and uh, now we've been painting and caulking and getting it all set up and. The cheapest and easiest way is to find somebody else to do it for you. But let's face it, most of us <laughs> want to do stuff like that ourselves. So, <laughs> right. Um, so uh, and I, these cabinets, what's what's on them? Is is it a of a varnish of some type on there, or are they plain? No, wood? they're they're totally unfinished, just brand new from Home Depot. Oh, there you go. Okay, then that's that's nice and easy to take care of. First thing you want to do is sand them nice and smooth. Then you're going to put a primer on them, and after that, you're ready to go ahead and start putting your finished coats. What you have to decide, though, is do you want to spray them or do you want to brush and roll them? And the big difference is going to be when you spray them, you typically get a smoother, cleaner finish than if you try to brush and roll them. Um, Are you going to paint the inside of them as well? Yes, Okay, if you're going to paint inside and out, I'll be honest with you, spraying is going to be the best way to do it. Yeah, that's well. That's what I was going to plan on doing. I I have a sprayer that I use, so I was going to do it that way. I was wondering if there, um, since it's in a bathroom, does it need some kind of protective coating after the paint? No. Uh, if you use a paint, you know, a good paint, that is rated for moisture areas. I mean, um, you know, you can use a trim paint because this is wood, and it, yeah. it'll be just fine. Okay. All right. And um, what about finished uh, cabinets, ones that are already, they've been in there a long time, but they're stained, and I'm guessing polyurethane. Um, what's the best way to get those ready to be painted? Uh, clean them up really good uh, using like uh, 409 to get all the grease and stuff off of them. Then you're going to put a product that's a deglosser. I use a product called Peso. Uh, I believe it's P-A-S-S-O. And it, it's nothing more than a deglosser that you wipe on. You let it sit for a minute. And then some of them you have to wipe off again. Some of them you don't. But it takes that slick finish off of it. And then same thing, prime it, paint it. Okay, and paint primer all in one. Don't don't go that route. Go with primer first. Uh, I on what you're doing cabinets and stuff. I personally would go with a primer first and then the paint. I mean, I, I know the primer and paint combination. It's come a long ways, and a lot of times people are using them on the walls, and it comes out great, but. For cabinets and, and nice finish work, I still prefer to, to use them separate because I'm, I'm going right. to use a primer sealer that's going to seal up any imperfections that might bleed through from the wood. 
Devin, and you know, talking about floor and decor, um, I didn't have a chance to go meet with them, but Brian, my executive producer, had an opportunity to meet with them earlier this week, and I'm going to play you a little clip from uh, when they met. I'm here with Matt P. at Florida Court in the Plano location, and Matt, let's talk about vinyl versus laminate flooring because a lot of people get those two floors confused. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the two, yeah, two floors, very popular items. Uh, the biggest difference between the two, uh, we'll start with laminate. Laminate is a first choice for everyone in their head on a good project. Uh, laminate is a composite floor that has a picture of wood printed on top and has a really strong surface put on top of it for scratch resistance and wear resistance. Some of them are made now with waterproofing for 30 hours. Vinyl, on the other hand, is a complete composite product that's made out of a PVC, or as some people like to call them, VCT. Won't get too into detail on the details there, but it's a plastic floor that is designed to have a wood look and a, some of them are designed with a underlayment built into them. So do you get a lot of times people walking in the store and they're like, I don't want vinyl. They hear the word vinyl. They think cheap look, plasticky, doesn't look like wood. Absolutely. It's the alternative because I don't have a lot of money, but it just doesn't look that great. Right. All the time, vinyl has come so far in its technology. The printing technologies are using inkjet print now, so you're getting true scans of wood applied to the surface of the floor. Um, they look way more convincing. They have hand-scraped finishes to make them look more realistic. They've come a really long way. Um, they've also come a long way of making them more hypoallergenic. The ones that we offer here have um, underlayments built into them, one of them being cork, one of them being foam. Um, they're also water-resistant for their entire lifetime. Let's talk about the installation because that process is usually why a lot of people buy this product because you said it was easy. I asked you, how hard is it? I'm like, can you put together a jigsaw puzzle? I'm like, well, of course. And then I did it, and it was like putting together a jigsaw puzzle. It was that simple. Yeah, it's just meeting your edges together. Honestly, if you have the right tools uh, just to get the cuts done, measure your cuts. So cutting tool, measuring tape, uh, good old set of knee pads to keep yourself from getting fatigued in the middle of the install, and a uh, confident set of hands, you're fine. So I had, in our lake house, I had to remove some vinyl flooring, I was using a saw to cut it, you know, and I watched you do it in two seconds with an X-Acto <laughs> knife, just cutting that thing. It's very easy. You can do your cuts literally while you're doing the floor. You don't have to Absolutely. get up, take every plank outside, cut it with a chop saw, do you? No, not at all. The great thing about vinyls is that you can use what's called score and cut uh, or score and snap, if you will, technology. You just get a straight edge on where you need your cut, drag the knife across to you know, cut the tension uh, off the surface and you just bend the board and it snaps clean right there. It makes it perfect. So let's talk about the waterproof. I know there's water resistance and I always laugh at water resistance. It'll put up a fight, but eventually, <laughs> you know, yeah. waterproof, you've got now the ability to put a wood floor, wood looking floor mm -hmm. in a kitchen, in a bathroom if somebody wants, because this is truly a waterproof product. Correct, yes. All, all vinyl products are truly waterproof. They have no composite woods inside of them, so they are truly waterproof. They do expand because no flooring can go down without expanding, but it has 100% uh, waterproof resistance to the floor. You can really take this stuff, dump a bucket of water on it, mop it up, and then just walk out. No damage to the floor whatsoever. One of the cool things, too, is and I'm just going to tell everybody listening, Matt, does you teach the people who are teaching the people how to do this. <laughs> when it comes to this type of floor, what are some of the tricks you might say, hey, when you come to Floor and Decor, we're going to teach you this when it comes to installing vinyl and laminate flooring? When it comes to vinyl laminate flooring, we're just going to teach you the tools of the step-by-step -step process, where to start, 
uh, where to be confident in yourself, and then uh, what tools you need to do just to do the install. And of course, pick out the right color and style that works for you. Well, Matt, I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy Saturday. And I know I'm looking down the row here. You've got a lot of people waiting to talk to you. So I'm going to let you get back to it. Absolutely. Thank you, Brian. All right. Thanks a lot. Andy, welcome to Texas Home Improvement. Hey, thank you for having me. How can I help you? Yeah, they had general questions about electrical upgrades to homes, um, remodeling 1970s, 1980 homes. What do you want to look at for maybe electrical panels that are outdated and aluminum wiring inside houses? Maybe some tips on that uh, for electrical updating and upgrading in a home. The aluminum wiring was in the early 70s. And so by the time you got into an 80s home, there was no more aluminum wiring being put into homes, really. Uh, If you have a home that has aluminum wiring, it's nothing to get overly concerned with. You just have to make sure that connections are properly done for the aluminum, uh, that you use a grease so that things don't uh, corrode. And periodically, every few years, you got to make sure everything's still tight. Uh, other than that, aluminum is, is fine. In fact, my house has aluminum wiring. My house was from 73. Um, as far as breaker panels, there are some, you know, that are not as good as others. Uh, and off the top of my head, I cannot for the life of me right now remember the ones that should be replaced because they had a, a bad issue of shorting. A lot of those have already been replaced, though, so that shouldn't be a huge issue. But yeah, I've seen like the Federal Pacific panels. I've heard that are they're good to switch out. Yeah, that that was it. Uh, so if you have one of those, yeah, it, it you may want to take a look at getting that replaced. But otherwise, you know, uh, breaker panels last a long time. If you get into an older house that still has fuses in it, it's time to upgrade to regular breakers, and even newer. You know, even houses from the old 90s don't have the same breakers that we're using today and the same trip mechanisms and things like that. But it's not a reason to start replacing the panels until stuff starts wearing out. The bus bar down the middle as it ages can can start getting some corrosion on it and stuff like that. But that's usually not in a 20 or 30 year old. You're usually talking stuff like 40 years old. So... And Truly, I, I wouldn't. One, the biggest reason most people have to replace breaker panels is a lot of houses were built with 100 amp services, and it's just not enough for what we run in our houses nowadays. You know, we've got computers going, we've got flat screen TVs, we've we've got all these cooking appliances that we didn't used to have, and all that draws off that breaker panel. So a lot of times people end up upgrading their service to a a two or two hundred amp service or bigger. Okay, that was going to be my follow up question. So you you nailed it right on the head. I appreciate that. Okay. Well, awesome. Andy, if Thank you have you so any other questions, feel free to give me a holler. Yes, sir. Have a great weekend. You too. Let's talk with Dan from Arlington. How are you, Dan? I'm good, Jim. Hey, it's raining here in Arlington today, and whenever it rains. I'm worried my backyard is going to flood and I've got a French drain that goes across the back of my house 
And I've had that French drain redone a couple times. I even dug it up once myself, and I've had problems with tree roots and this, that, and the other. So my question is this. Why in the heck am I digging a trench and putting a pipe in the bottom of it? Why don't we just cut a swale and dump the water out from the eaves and down the downspouts into these swales and let them go on down the side of the house to the uh, to the street? Because for some reason, too many people who put in French drains don't understand what they're used for. A French drain is used for capturing groundwater, moisture that's traveling through the soil, not the surface water. They're, they're actually rather poor at capturing surface water. They'll do it, and if you've got a low area and you don't want to have a catch basin, you can put a French drain in, and the moisture will soak through the soil into it and drain away in a couple hours but when we have rains and you have water that's standing or flowing typically a French drains not the solution for that just like you just said swales to move the water catch basins things like that that's how you deal with surface water so if I was going to cut a swale and try to do it myself um, I'm worried about you know getting the shovel out and spending a long time and backbreaking work. What's the most efficient way to do that? Uh, rent a machine of some type, some type where I can scrape the sod and then regrade yeah, the, the yard to get a swale. If it's a big enough area, yes, uh, that that's that's absolutely the easiest way to do it. Uh, I, in fact, I'm going to have to do that at my own house. Uh, I've got one side of the house that just over the years the soil has built up. And it's not flowing properly any longer, so I'm going to end up bringing in a tractor, scrape it, redo my swales, and keep the water flowing the way I want it to flow. And, and uh, you know, uh, renting a tractor, it's not that expensive to use for a weekend, especially when you start thinking about the the pain pills and stuff for the backache after digging all that time. <laughs> That's what I'm worried about. Yeah. Now, so, go to, go to like United Rentals, and right. you can get uh, they got some nice small tractors that uh, you can rent for just a few hundred bucks for the weekend and and get this all done. Typically, in a matter of a few hours. Well, that's that's what I'm leaning towards. But uh, answer me this: Is there somebody you would recommend? If I wanted to just call somebody to uh, that can do the engineering, do the calculations, how much water's coming down, you know, and all of that rigmarole, um, and then uh, somebody that I can trust to that yeah. knows what they're doing to be able to do the work. Uh, Devers Engineering can do all the design work for you, and they're on our website at thipro.com. Uh, and as far as doing the work, uh, a lot of landscapers do it. Foundation repair contractors do it. There's a lot of different contractors out there who will do uh, the drainage work for you. My company even does it. So Devers, Devers, Devers Engineering. Can, yeah, D-E-A-V-E-R-S. Got it. Okay. Hey, that's great. I'll, I'll get a hold of those folks, and that way we can uh, – at least get a good design, and then take a look at who's actually going to do the uh, do the physical side of it. 
Thank okay, you so okay. much, Jim. That's a, uh, that's a great answer today. I'm glad I called in. Well, I appreciate the call. You have a great afternoon. You take care. Bye now. Bye. Just a reminder, it's a huge help if you subscribe to, rate, and review the podcast. It helps people find us. Donna, this is Jim. How can I help you? Hi, Mr. Denton. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I've got a home that was built in the 70s, and it's here in Beans. And the people that have sided it, they ran the siding all the way down to the ground, so there's no ventilation over probably three complete sides of the house. Would it be better to bring that bottom siding up so that there's air circulation under the floor? Better than what? Then leaving it down completely on the ground, and that then the the ground oh. never gets any air to dry out yep. underneath the house. Nope you've you've got to have ventilation underneath a crawl space house, and okay. you don't necessarily have to take siding and lift it up. I mean, you could add vents into the siding in order to allow for air circulation. Right, like a screened type. Yes, ma'am. We're going to head to Spring, Texas. Hello, Warren. How you doing? I'm doing wonderful. How about you? Oh, I guess all right. I've been a uh, AIBD designer for God knows 40 years, uh, but I have never designed a home in the hill country in Texas. And the way I see what they're doing when they put their slabs in, in the subdivision I'm in, is they will put the plumbing in after the forms set, obviously, and then, uh, you know, then put in the fill dirt, which I really don't, I don't like that idea because I don't know how they don't keep from knocking, you know, all the plumbing out of whack. Uh, yep. The other thing is, you know, there are some people that have, you know, built up, you know, huge mounds of dirt or, or, uh, what we call select fill, of course, you know what that is. And That's last uh, week's junk. <laughs> and then you know, you know, set their form on a normal level, like I'm used to doing around here. I've built right. many, many houses, and uh, then they, you know, they don't even drill piers. You know, fill piers or or bell bottoms, the other one. And they just put the slab on top of that. Well, that concerns me because I don't think that that soil has settled long enough to, uh, you know, be solid enough to put a slab with a two-story house on it. All right. Then the third option I have is pier and beam, which would be great. Except, you know, I know in that area there's there's a whole bunch of what they call those copper-headed rattle moccasins. You know, around, and I don't know that if that would be a good option because, uh, you know, if you have to use like fourteen or sixteen inch, you know, uh, eye joist, you know, underneath your house, I don't know if that'd be, uh, you know, financially feasible. Yeah, I don't know which way to go. I am lost. <laughs> okay, where exactly? What part of the hill country are you looking at building? Blanco. Okay. Blanco has a lot of rock when you go down just a couple feet 
in, in fact, a lot of the rock is actually all the way to the surface even. And so really you need to have a soils test, find out exactly where the rock is, how deep it is. If your grade beams are going all the way down to the rock, if you're doing a slab on grade, you'll be fine. Regardless of what fill you put in and stuff, it's the grade beams that'll hold the, well, the I've slab d- I've in dug place. Down, I've dug down about so 18 inches, 2 feet, and most part where I want to put the house, and that's, I'm hitting, you know, rock. But I don't know okay. if it's solid all the way through, you know. Right, and that's that's the reason for the soils test, though. They'll bore through it and make sure it's not just like a six-inch layer, and then we're back to junk soil. Uh, but if if your rock is that shallow, I would put a slab on grade. I would dig my grade beams down to that rock, and and either chip into the rock a little bit, or at the very least sit on that rock surface. That will hold your foundation from moving. Uh, and if you're on in those type of soils, you really don't need piers, as long as it's not just, like I said, a six-inch layer of rock or something. Matt in Friendswood, how are you doing today? Good. How are you doing, Jim? I'm doing wonderful. I got uh, a house that was built in 2001, and I have two downstairs rooms that the vents are not working. When the air's mm. on. Uh-huh. So... What would be the best approach to tackle that? Are you getting any air through them? None. Okay. Well, the first thing to do then is trace back and find out where the ductwork goes and make sure it's even hooked up. Well, it goes second through the wall. Thing, yeah. Well, the secondary issue then will be if it is hooked up to see if it has a damper in it that has okay. been shut off. And if that's the case, it's just a matter of opening the damper and letting air flow through it again. Right. Uh, and and it's not unusual for dampers not to be easy to see because they, they can have just a little valve that sticks out the ductwork up in the attic uh, that can be turned. And in some cases, they actually have electronic turns on them if your home has some zoning in it. No, it doesn't. Okay. But unfortunately, I'm, there's one other option, and, and I, I'm going to throw this one out because I hate to say it, but this is probably going to be the more likely one. The ductwork is kinked somewhere just because it's a two-story house, and it has a sharp elbow in it that kinked the ductwork and it's not allowing the air through. Could it be that they forgot to add those rooms? Absolutely. That's, so that's the reason my first thing was, let's find out where the ductwork goes uh, and and see if we can trace it that way. But uh, a lot of times, unfortunately, what we find is it's got a kink in it that has to be taken care of. You know, the, the, it comes down to this, though. The absolute worst thing you have to do is a little sheetrock repair to get to wherever the stuff is. Yeah. So I gotta find where it's kinked at first, and, and it's on the bottom yep. story. Yeah. Top story. Yeah. Now they have cameras that they can run up through some of those pipes to follow and find out where the ductwork's running. It's used on sewer pipes all the time, but find out where the ductwork's running and see if there's a kink in it. I had an email question that came in that I wanted to address today. Now this actually comes out of Austin. 
And it says the house has a well and a septic tank. Two bathrooms have the terrible sewer gas odor, especially on bath bathroom in the shower. It's so bad that I no longer can shower in there. It starts off okay, and then in a few minutes, the odor is overwhelming. I think it's coming from the septic tank, but do not know why. Your thoughts? <clears throat> well, I'm betting it's not coming from the septic tank, because if it was coming from the septic tank, uh, you would smell it prior to starting the shower, and then as you were using the shower, it should dissipate because you would be filling the P-trap with water and blocking some of the odor. So you, you mentioned two things. You've got a well and septic tank. So I think it's going to be down to one of two other areas. It could be the well if, if you're hitting sulfur, but you should smell that when you turn the kitchen faucet on or wash your hands, things like that. Uh, it could be from the water heater. If the rods, the anode rods in the water heater have gone bad, it will give off a rotten egg smell that smells like sewer gas. But the other area, and I think this is going to be the most likely area that it could be, is in the drain of the shower itself, that it's gotten clogged up with uh, soap scum and hair and just all kinds of nasty stuff. That's festering. When you start running the water through there, you're disturbing it, and it's giving off that gas odor, and it stinks. It is bad. And I'm betting that's where it's at, because if it was the water heater, again, you would smell it when you're washing hands. Anytime you'd be turning on hot water, you would smell it. Uh, if it was anything else, you'd smell it all the time, but you you were sp- specific about only smelling it in the sh- in the shower and not being able to shower because of that smell any longer. That's the reason I'm thinking that's where it's at. But this is also a great reason why I prefer you call so that we can talk through some of these things. But um, here's what you need to do. Take off the little grate in the bottom of the shower. Look down in there, and I think you're going to see a black sludge. And the pipe's big enough that you can run a snake through there to clean out that black sludge. And I think that will take care of your problem for you. Let's head to DeSoto. Mike, this is Jim. How can I help you? Yeah, I've got a question about um, foundation repairs. Um, okay. I've had some, some companies come out and give me an estimate on the foundation repair. And some of them have said that I need an engineer's report. Now, they give me an estimate, and then they, they tell me that I need to get an engineer's report, or some of them will give me an engineer's report. Yeah. Uh, what is the purpose of that? You sent me an email. Right. I, I actually read your email uh, in my first hour today at the 12 o'clock hour. And um, the purpose of that report is the cities require it for pulling permits. A lot of cities do. Not all cities, but a lot of cities do. And they require two engineer's reports, one done before the foundation work is done and one done after. And a lot of times, if you have the engineer's reports, they don't even bother doing the inspections anymore. They simply go off the uh, engineer's reports as the inspection. The other purpose of them is if you were going to sell the house in the next, say, year, year or so, year or two, uh, 
the if you if the house sold and somebody tried to finance it like FHA for instance they would require that engineer's report and if you didn't have that reports you would they would not be able to finance the loan okay okay you know, the, the whole thing is there is no regulations on foundation repair. There's no licensing, no registration, nothing. And this is the way a lot of cities try to protect people is to to make sure that the engineer's report is done because the engineer is then saying what this foundation guy designed, yes, that will work to fix the foundation. You've just heard the best calls and questions from Texas Home Improvement. For more information about our show, go to THIPro.com.